Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. We're opening this week with a song that was very, very close to my heart back when I was a young girl up in the Bronx. I was trying to figure a lot of ish out, you know? Who are you? It's a question we all ask ourselves. We'll get back to this in a bit, but for now, The Who. Oh, 
that was Who Are You from the album of the same name by The Who in 1978. They were actually one of my favorite bands when I was growing up because so many of their songs were about identity. Pete Townshend certainly worked through a lot of that stuff with many of his songs, and I understand that because that's what I tried to do and hope I did with Fish Out of Agua. When I first started writing, I thought the book was just going to be a collection of the mostly funny stories I told at the Moth in the early aughts about growing up as the red-headed, freckle-faced Puerto Rican in a mostly Italian-Irish working-class Bronx neighborhood. But my writing teacher at the time, the amazingly intuitive and gracious Miss Jennifer Demerit, asked me why was I writing this book. She asked what made it different than any other coming-of-age story. She said, if you can't answer that, why is anyone going to want to read it? I thought about it, and I realized she was right. And I knew that for Fish Out of Agua to have any real meat, for it to matter, it also had to be about something more. So I added an element I had never explored in my stories before. Stories about my family and how a long-held secret impacted the relationship between my mother and me for over 40 years. And along the way, I had to address how issues such as racism, mental illness, drugs, sexual, and child abuse were ignored, dismissed, and treated as shameful in my family. And I had to face some unpleasant truths and also come to some beautiful conclusions. But getting back to who are you, that's the question I asked myself time and time again throughout the writing of Fish Out of Agua. Because to be a fish out of agua, a fish out of water, means to be someone out of their natural element, an outsider. For me, it meant living in a kind of cultural limbo, eternally balancing on an ethnic seesaw, always in danger of being too much of something and not enough of another thing. Most people have experienced not fitting in somewhere at some time in their lives. And Fish Out of Agua is a book for them too. In the past 50 years, we've made such great strides towards compassion, sensitivity, and recognition of many social issues which are now in danger of becoming undone by the stroke of a wayward pen. And that's another reason why I'm glad I wrote Fish Out of Agua, because I wanted to honor my parents, because so few people did. When I was a child, I was made painfully and sometimes very unkindly aware multiple times how my family were the pobrecitos, the poor outcasts, the lesser thans. Oh, I heard the whispers and the tisk tisks. No one would ever really say this to our face, but I could tell from inference. I was a smart kid. I saw the side eyes. I saw the downcast eyes. I heard those hushed hushed whispers in Spanish, the mystery language, and so often I felt that nothing was ever to be expected of or from us, that we didn't count. And that's why I dedicated Fish Out of Agua to my parents. And I said in the, on the front piece page of the book that it's for all the people who thought I couldn't and all those who knew I could. And they all know exactly who they are. So, what I'll be doing this season is reading two chapters from Fish Out of Agua at each show, 
along with some commentary about New York City and some music from the time of the stories. And it is my hope that through these stories, my stories, which is just one part of, of our many shared Latinx stories, maybe some of you may be inspired to share yours too, because our collective voices are necessary now more than ever. There may be at times some triggering situations for some of you, and you may hear occasionally some language that isn't quite acceptable anymore. But in order to portray truthfully the truth of those times, I could not do in good faith anything else but, as I would hear the grown-ups say during my childhood, tell it like it is, or tell it like it was. The stories I'll be reading today are about my parents. Their families came to New York City from different towns in Puerto Rico, and they lived in El Barrio, a neighborhood also known as Spanish Harlem in New York City, a neighborhood where, as in the evolution of all New York City neighborhoods, they were among the first wave of Latino immigrants from the Caribbean who had displaced the previous Irish, Italian, and Jewish residents, who in turn, now the Latinos are being displaced by yuppies and other folk today. You could call it white flight and white return, <laughs> only it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that train of thought is for another show. This story from Fish Out of Agua is called The Illumination of St. Lucy. It's about my mother and her family and how they came to New York City from Puerto Rico in the late 1930s while the Depression was still going on. In 1938, when this story begins, the average cost of a new house was $3,900. Average wages per year was $1,730. $1,730, people. That's what you need to make a week today if you want to live by yourself without 17 roommates. The average cost for rent was $27 a month. In October of that year, Orson Welles did the famous radio adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds. If you don't know what that is, Go Google that shit. GTS. It's about an alien invasion from outer space, which many listeners thought was real. In March of that year, Germany invaded Austria, and in November, Kristallnacht happened. And if you know, don't know what that is, you also need to GTS. Google that shit. In that year, Christopher Lloyd, John Voight, and Bernie Madoff were born. Action Comics issued the very first Superman comic, and one of the most popular movies was Jezebel, starring one of the most popular movie stars of the time, Betty Davis. When this story ends, it's 1951, and unemployment was at an almost all-time low of 3.3%. It's hard to imagine now, isn't it? The average wages per year was, had risen to $3,510, and the average cost of a brand new car was $1,500. Oh my God, it's crazy. Popular films that year. 1951, An American in Paris, The African Queen, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Stella! Born that year was Sting, Phil Collins, Bob Geldorf, and Jane Seymour. The very first oral contraceptive, a.k.a. the pill, was invented by Mexican chemist Louis Miramantes. The term rock and roll was first coined by Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed, but two of the most popular singers of the time were Tony Bennett, who was still alive and kicking it and working it today, and my mother's favorite singer then and now, Nat King Cole. 
Here's one of his songs my mother would have listened to as an 18-year-old in New York City in 1951. Nat King Cole's Too Young. They try to tell us we're too young Too young to really be in love They say that love's a word A word we've only heard But can't begin to know the meaning of and yet we're not too young to know this love will last though years may go and then This love will last though years may go And then someday they may recall We were not too young We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. One thing that I forgot to mention about 1951, the year my mother turned 18, was that that was the year of the first color television picture broadcast from the Empire State Building. Crazy, right? It was also the year I Love Lucy premiered on CBS. And did you get? My mom is named Lucy. So there's a connection here. And television will also be 
an important part of this story, as you will see in Chapter 2 of Fish Out of Agua, The Illumination of St. Lucy. The day after my mother arrived in New York City, she woke up to find her world had turned blanco. White things, white sparkly, shimmery, floating things had taken over the sky. They were swirling over the ground, on the running boards of cars, and on the limbs of what she thought were dead trees. She had only known the Caribbean's eternal summer and didn't know that trees could drop their leaves and then sprout again. So barefoot, with her short braid sticking out behind her, she ran out of the apartment into the magic street and bolted, just as quickly, back inside. It burns! It burns! I want to go home! Pero mija, you are home, her mother said. Running innocently into unfamiliar and hurtful things was the story of my mother's entire childhood. What I know, what I've been told, is this. My abuela Marisol's first husband, my mother's father, was a man named Beltran. He was a musician who went back and forth between Corozal, the rural town where my mother and Grandma Mari lived, to New York City. He said, I'll come back for you. I'll bring you and the baby to Nueva York. We'll have a new life. A good life. He kept his word. At first, he did come back a few times. But when my mother was two years old, he left Corozal and did not return. When my grandmother eventually realized she had been abandoned, she moved her daughter, Luz, whose name means the light, and her mother, Mami Marisol, from their finca, the little farm where my mother had learned to drink fresh goat's milk every morning and where my great-grandmother had swung chickens by their necks before slicing their heads off. They all moved to the city of Old San Juan. There, my grandma Mari met a man named Julio, who wanted to marry her and move to Nueva York. It was the 1930s, the Great Depression. Jobs and food were scarce. Julio said to my grandmother, You will have to leave the child and your mother behind. I will not, my grandmother counted. If you want me, you will have to take all of us. You see, my grandmother had a plan. Once she was in Nueva York, she would track down Beltran, who, last she heard, was living in El Barrio, Spanish Harlem, the place where everyone from the island of Puerto Rico went to live, where they were going to live. And she was sure it would only be a matter of time until she found her lost love. And when they reunited and Beltran saw his then five-year-old daughter's ivory complexion, Roman nose, and tightly spiraled jet black hair, the exact reflection of his, he would, without any doubt, immediately fall in love with both of them all over again. And then they would all live together in bliss. At least, that was the way she imagined it. I don't know if Grandma Mari ever bothered to actually get divorced from the long-gone Beltran or not, but back in the 1930s, who checked? No one cared about the details of yet another Latino mother, child, an elderly woman, vieja. 
In December of 1938, after a week on a boat, a large, clean, and nice boat, according to my mother, Grandma Mari, Papa Julio, as he insisted on being called, Mami Marisol, my great-grandmother, and my mother arrived at their new railroad apartment on East 103rd Street between Park and Madison Avenues in El Barrio, New York City. In most ways, there were a family, though Papa Julio would never replace the father my mother had never really known. On the contrary, as my mother's half-sisters were born, quiet, heavy Carmen, sharp, willful Ophelia, and the affectionate, inquisitive Dulce, my mother was seldom allowed to play in the conservatory garden in Central Park anymore. That place was her refuge, where she would climb trees and read books about faraway places. But now, she had to help her mommy take care of her baby sisters, and she would now often find the kitchen cabinets locked to her, because Papa Julio said that she ate too much. She was taking food away from Papa Julio's real daughters. And worst of all, she had to endure the unspeakable shame, the vergüenza, the thing that happened here and there in the night that my mother could tell no one about, the thing that her mommy should have known and should have stopped from happening. I don't understand. Did her mommy not see? Did she not care? Why didn't her mommy leave that monster and take her and abuela away? But by now, my abuela was plagued with health issues. Asthma, migraines, mal de estomago, and distracted by her own mother's withering health and by her other three daughters. So maybe, and it made my mother cry to think of this, maybe Mami Marisol didn't want to know. Vergüenza would eventually stop, but my mother would never, ever forget that she was not Papa Julio's daughter. In 1951, when my mother, Luz, her Spanish name long replaced by the Americanized Lucy, turned 18, she was the age where a girl today is planning her prom outfit and matching her pedicure to the upholstery in the limo. Instead, she had been working full-time for three full years. In ninth grade, when she turned 15, she was told by Papa Julio she would have to leave school to work, when what she had dreamed of doing after graduation was becoming an interpreter at the brand-new United Nations offices and traveling the world. She managed to compromise by entering Julia Richmond's high school's co-op program, where she worked one week and went to school the next. It took longer to graduate that way, but Papa Julio got what he wanted, which was her income, and my mother got what she wanted which was her high school diploma. On a Saturday evening in early December, Lucy and her best friend Daisy went to the Holiday Bazaar at St. Lucy's Church. It was the Catholic church and school around the corner on East 104th Street that almost the entire neighborhood attended, but not my mother or, or her half-sisters. My grandmother had grown to prefer the immediacy and intensity of a glacia storefront Christian worship to the restrained hierarchy of the Catholicism in which she was raised. My mother was naturally shy and cautious and didn't have a lot of friends. But Daisy Varela, who lived in the building next door and had been my mother's one close friend since grade school, had no trouble meeting people and dragging my mother out with her. The two were opposites in every way. Lucy was tall, 
flat and outgoing, my mother short, curvy, and reserved. Their friendship worked because my mother kept Daisy from getting into too much trouble, and Daisy had the unique talent of being able to make my mother laugh. Daisy's motive for going to the bazaar was to look for boys, my mother's to be out of the apartment even if just for a little while. The bazaar took place in the school's gymnasium, decorated chock full of post-World War II overabundance, including loads of pine bow garlands with icicles and red velvet bows, a life-size panorama of a Christmas crutch with actual livestock, and the main attraction, an entire aisle devoted to holiday food, drink, and minor gambling games like Under and Over. Daisy and Lucy ignored the tables selling treats like pasteles and coquito, virgin coquito, this was after all a church, and pushed their way towards the end of the row where Daisy had spotted a group of cute boys. On their way, they passed two priests selling raffle tickets for five cents each, 20 for a dollar, with prizes of bottled wine, box chocolates, and various trinket, trinkets, and a grand prize that stopped them both dead in their tracks. Daisy and Lucy stared in awe at the item sitting in front of them on the floor. It was a massive, carved, dark wood piece of furniture holding a Philco black and white television with a built-in AM radio and hi-fi record player which made even Daisy momentarily forget about boys. It was the pinnacle of entertainment technology at the time, whose offerings, presence, and status could transform the poorest railroad, railroad flat into a middle-class temple of conspicuous consumption. No one in the neighborhood could afford to buy it. Hardly anyone in El Barrio could afford any television. And as far as Lucy and Daisy knew, there wasn't a single one on East 103rd Street at all. Yet. Let's get it, Daisy said. Let's try. If I win, you can come over all the time. And if you win, I can come over all the time. We can invite boys. My mother told me her first reaction was to say no. It was her initial response to everything. Because if you say no, you can never be disappointed. But as she stood in front of the block of wood, glass, and tubes, her mind turned to this thought. This is something Papa Julio could never afford. Yes, she said, let's do it. Daisy bought two tickets. Lucy had her weekly co-op pay of $32.50 in her pocketbook, and she traded an entire dollar for the chance to win. An hour later, my mother's number was called. Daisy leaped at her, screaming, We won, Lucy, we won! My mother, who was just as jubilant as Daisy, but as usual held her feelings inside, she extricated herself from her friend's embrace, smoothed her hair, and brought her winning ticket to the priests. The television was delivered that night. Two days later, the priests from the bazaar, one young, one old, knocked on my mother's apartment door. Both were tall, bespectacled Irishmen straight out of the bells of St. Mary's, and both wore their best vow-of-poverty faces. When my mother answered, they said they'd come because she, the petite, baby-faced girl who presented them with the winning ticket, was obviously underage and therefore disqualified from the raffle. 
they hadn't wanted to make a scene at the bazaar where everyone had seemed so genuinely happy for her, so they decided to allow her to keep the television over the weekend before taking it back. My mother said, I'm 18. I'm not underage. I won. The priests then moved to Plan B. They told my mother they had been a terrible mistake. The television had been meant for the church all along. It should never have been raffled at all. Don't you want to donate it to St. Lucy so that the poor and indigent can enjoy it instead of just your family? No, my mother said. We're poor. I want it. It's ours. The priest looked down at my mother, who after a brief adolescent growth spurt had remained just a shade over five feet tall. But, 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 but you're just a child. Children aren't allowed to gamble. It's a sin. Let us speak with your mother. When my four-foot-ten-inch grandmother came to the door and saw the collars, she crossed herself and said, Ay, bendito, que pasó? Oh, my God, what is happening? As my mother translated why the priest was standing there. Now, my abuela was religious, but she was not a fool. Perhaps gambling was a sin. But having Milton Berle and Ricky Ricardo in your own living room was a gift from El Señor. My abuela straightened her back, thrust out her chin, and enunciated slowly and clearly. My daughter having 18 years. Television, ours. Thank you, God. Thank Lucy. Before gently closing the door in their faces. There was nothing the priest could do. My mother had won the television fair and square. She was 18 of legal age, and since the family didn't belong to St. Lucy's Church, they couldn't even use shame as a weapon. St. Lucy's had lost to a higher-powered Lucy. The Black and White Philco Council was the first TV in my mother's building. Every Sunday night, family, friends, and friends of friends would gather before it to experience Uncle Milty wearing una falda, a skirt, Lucy and Ricky, and other audiovisual delights. Daisy came often, as promised, but sadly, never brought any boys. Lucy had won the television, but it was still Papa Julio's house. The TV did nothing to change anything between my mother and Papa Julio. But it did open her mind to a crazy idea. Maybe. Just maybe. It was okay to say yes once in a while. We're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. It's hard to imagine a room full of people crowded around a black and white television in a time where most people have their own personal devices plugged in at every moment from childhood, isn't it? But that's the way it was in 1951. So, another thing we'll be doing on Fish Out of Agua this season is speaking with some POC and LGBTQ artists, activists, educators, poets, filmmakers, storytellers, and more whom I've come to know in my 20 years as a working artist. Some will be native New Yorkers like myself. Others will be transplants. All will have this in common, that New York City is the place they call home, the place they came to pursue their dreams. Each of them will talk about what they do and why it matters. Here's our first story. 
This is Michelle Carlo from Fish Out of Agua, and I'm sitting here right now with a friend of mine from, um, I know from day job stuff, his name is Brian, and he is, um, he's from the millennial generation. Yeah, we gotta keep it real, people. Everybody can't just be like a vieja titi shell like me. Anyway, he is an awesome man. He is a fashion designer, a cultural programmer for a brand. He's a tastemaker. He's a lot of things, and he's also a really, really dear friend. So I want to welcome Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, my it, God. It's you, great to be here out of the agua with you. It was like you were like actually one of my first choices because of conversations that we had um, when the clients went home and we were sharing like a glass of wine. And I just wanted to have you on because I know that I art is very important to your life and we are both artists with day jobs and we have sometimes conflict with uh, pursuing both and I just want you to talk about a little bit about what you do. Most definitely. Well, you know, as you know, I work in a photography studio in New York City. Um, I have been fortunate enough to have this amazing job and be around amazing creative people. I guess part of the, the paradigms that I deal with between being an artist and working at the space is really um, being taken as serious as the artist that I also work for. I think that it's something to kind of observe that in this industry, as big as it is, it is mostly, you know, Anglo. And yes. there's not that many people behind the scenes. No, I get it. I'm the person of color at my job check it so it's, you know <laughs> it, it, it becomes a thing and um because of that sometimes you you become a novelty and people kind of uh like to see you as uh i wouldn't say less than but definitely not as equal it's more kind of they're enamored with the idea of you being kind of the token you know mm. uh hispanic funny person, vibrant and, you know, dynamic and as, as much as it, it could be used as an asset to move you forward, sometimes it, it seems like it hinders you because people don't seem to think that you're real. It's almost like you're treated like a, uh, I guess, a, a character. Yes, I, I, I totally get it. I mean, sometimes as a Latino, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican and Brian is, is, is Dominican, and sometimes we... Um, unknowingly or unwittingly fulfill an Anglo role of being the spicy person, of being the person with the personality. Automatically. Automatically. Like we have to be, like we feel like we have to be like that all the time. And our industry is, is fashion. And um, sometimes it's hard to get taken seriously if you're not among the, I guess, the top tier of the mover shaker people. I, I will tell you that at not the job that I hold now, but a job that I held previously um, many years ago, this is back in the 20th century, um, one of the bosses heard me speaking what he called Hispanic in the elevator, and he asked my boss, wait, we have a, we have a Spanish person proofreading? Like, I couldn't speak English. And I was just, like, floored. And this was, this was in the 90s, and um, it, things like that just, you know, would just keep happening. I was like, well, I couldn't be a copy editor or a proofreader because I was Latin. Like, if they didn't know, it was okay. But once they knew, it, there was like a question there. And like, am I supposed to pass? Am I supposed to hide who I am? I mean, that's just like the antithesis of what we've been taught is our pride. You know, I think that's kind of where the issue really lies. It's kind of, okay, we would like to have you here for diversity, but we kind of want you to just blend in. And I think, 
um, it's kind of the adversity that we all face is really holding on to your character because you have to force them to kind of pass the whole stereotype or whatever they're assuming that you are. I think there's like this, you know, the spicy Latina role comes through and everybody kind of falls in love with that. And then like, you know, after they start to see that there is substance behind that, that there is more than that, and they have to understand the cultural differences. I think there's like a big thing in America where people just kind of want it to be like this big homogenous thing where everybody like looks the same, wears the same clothes and doesn't really stand out. Right. And even being in a creative industry, it's funny how you can still kind of see that sometimes, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, back in the 90s, they used to call models of color ethnic models. That was the buzzword for it. And um, I was like, ethnic? Like, ethnic what? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's, it's a superficial business. Um, so, no, most definitely. But you know what? That being said, alongside that, there also are great opportunities where you use that weakness to your advantage yes. to move forward, to open doors, to open eyes, to really kind of change what people are thinking. But it's a slippery slope between, like, falling into what they think you are and showing them who you really are. That's true. And Brian, I have one question for you because I know we need we need to wrap up, but I want you to um, just tell everybody out there in Fish Out of Aqualand what exactly are the art forms you're pursuing and why you think it's important for your voice to be heard at this specific point in time. Um, I am a designer. That's what, That's my degree. Currently, I'm doing cultural programming for a couple brands and what that entitles is being a tastemaker and kind of putting things together, other artists from different fields to develop a program for branding, for a show, for any kind of that development that has to do with kind of the, the other perspective that brands kind of hold, right? Um, for me, it's important because I think that people of color now more than ever have a stronger voice. And um, we have a demographic that is definitely valid and what we choose what we like what we do is definitely important more than ever where our vote our presence everything is everything extremely about valid everything about us i would bang my fifth on the table but i'm afraid that it would like make too much noise so and there is like a a generational difference between us because when i was growing up my parents tried to stifle the culture and hide it. We had to speak English in the house yeah. and, and try to act like everybody else. Now, I think people from your generation is like, no, we you are know, Latin and proud. We have so many channels, like like literally, we have so many channels yeah. between like every kind of media outlet having a Spanish version of them, of like a, any kind of like coverage is also done in Spanish. And also the whole like being like New Yorican and this whole demographic is also represented now. To be the Spanglish nation is a real thing, and we're embracing it, you know? Between music, between news, between fashion, everything is completely being embraced. I love the Spanglish thing. I've been making up Spanish words my entire life and getting in trouble for it. Maybe now I won't so much anymore. You know, you probably deserve the credit for a lot of the Spanglish words that are probably out there right well, now. Well, I don't know. I'm not that old, honey. Oh, <laughs> the one that I like now, I, ha I, have, an, I have a cat. Um, a female cat, and she gets grouchy sometimes, so I call her a groucheria. Groucheria? Yeah, because she, she purrs and she, and she growls at the same time. Groucheria is something I want to hold on to. I'm going to make that happen. Okay. Hashtag groucheria. <laughs> thank you for having me, Michelle. Yes, and thank you for being here with us on Fish Out of Agua, Brian. Most definitely. Okay. Bendición. Mwah. We're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. This next story is about my father and his family and how they came to New York City from Puerto Rico in the late 1920s before the Depression 
and were actually part of the very first wave of Puerto Rican immigrants from New York to New York City. In 1944, when this story takes place, the average cost of a new house was $3,450. The average wages per year were $2,400. The cost of a gallon of gas, if you could get it, was 15 cents. The average cost of rent was $50 a month and a loaf of bread was just 10 cents. Also in 1944, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected to an unprecedented fourth term as the President of the United States. Kidney dialysis and sunscreen were invented that year. Gladys Knight, Diana Ross, and Roger Daltrey of The Who were born. Pop music was Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, and Ella Fitzgerald. Lifeboat, Double Indemnity, and Meet Me in St. Louis were popular films. And there had been rationing of almost everything including food, throughout the United States for nearly four years because of World War II. New York City, like the rest of the United States for the most part, was untouched by the ravages going throughout Europe during this time. But in New York City, there was a certain hardship and privation that children of the generation of my parents did endure, one that has all but faded from modern memory. And now... Chapter 3 from Fish Out of Agua, Turkeys, or The Brief, Wondrous Life of Senor Pavel. Don't name it, my grandma Izzy ordered. It's not a pet. It's for eat. But of course it had already been named. As soon as my father and his three brothers woke up and saw the long-necked, bug-eyed squawking bird with a rope around its neck tied to the kitchen steam pole. Of course they named it. Senor Pablo! Senor Pablo! Mr. Turkey, Mr. Turkey. It was March 1944. After three years of World War II and food rationing, there was hardly a scrap of meat to be had in all of New York City, never mind in El Barrio. But on one still frozen morning, in a second-floor railroad apartment on East 106th Street between Park and Madison Avenues, there did appear, alive and intact, young turkey. My grandpa Ezekiel was a blackout warden, one of the guardians who walked the city streets every night after lights out. For someone who'd been classified as 4F, unfit for the military due to asthma, flat feet, and the punctured eardrum, it was an honorable way to serve one's country. He'd check building after building to make sure not a sliver of light escaped the mandatory black curtains each apartment had to draw after sunset. Armed with only a flashlight, he'd inspect every doorway and vestibule to make sure no stray Japs or Nazis had parachuted in to spy on, or even worse, blow up El Barrio. There was another advantage to being a blackout warden, one that... I'm sure was foremost in my grandfather's mind when he applied for the job. And as that March night slowly edged towards gray dawn, either in some nameless back alley or perhaps even smack in the middle of Madison Avenue, a live turkey pullet somehow fell off the back of a truck and into my grandfather's waiting arms. Grandma Izzy was ecstatic, or what would pass for ecstatic for her. She had come to Nueva York with my grandfather in 1928, which made them the equivalent of 
Mayflower Puerto Ricans, as the great island diaspora would not begin until after the war was over. And, like many pioneers, they found the natives were not particularly welcoming. For the past 16 years, Grandma Izzy had endured not only poverty, prejudice, and multiple pregnancies, but the bombardment of constantly being told to go back to her country by fellow immigrants and their descendants, who were too ignorant to realize that Puerto Rico actually belonged to the United States. So if anything, she had more right to be here than they did. And now, after three years of eating little else than rice and beans, which, to put it bluntly, even she was damn tired of, there was now a real American Thanksgiving tied up in her kitchen. Grandma Izzy was truly grateful, not only for the promise of meat, but also for the chance to show up the a quien que tu crees, who do you think you are, blanquitos, white people, who lived on the ground floor below. Who did they think they were, these blanquitos? That, of course, wasn't their name. That knowledge has, alas, been lost to the ages. But according to my father, these blanquitos were the last Irish family left on the block. As would soon occur in countless other New York City neighborhoods, a changing of the guard had begun. As Latin families moved in, the Ingladesas, Judios, and Italianos moved out, seeking safety in Washington Heights, the South Bronx, or, at the very least, six blocks east on Pleasant Avenue, as close to the East River as you could get, and still be in Manhattan. By all accounts, the Blanquitos were no worse than any other family in the barrio. Mrs. Blanquito was clean, soft-spoken, and amazingly cheerful, considering she had nine, yes, nine, children, who were actually better behaved than some of the other neighborhood tribes. Her boys wouldn't play with my father and his brothers, but didn't fight with them either which, in a neighborhood like Spanish Harlem in 1944, was something of a miracle. Her husband, the gangly, affable Mr. Blanquito, who suffered from sporadic bouts of employment that interrupted his steady job of drinking and disappearing, only to reappear days later propped up against the door, sprawled on the front stoop, or collapsed belly up once or twice under a tree in nearby Central Park, was, for the most part, a decent family man. So to answer Grandma Izzy's question, who do they think they are, the Blanquitos knew exactly who they were. They were a family whose patriarch was too poor, too drunk, and too clueless to move his wife and kids away from a place they no longer belonged. That, of course, didn't stop Grandma Izzy from letting Mrs. Blanquito know, every chance she got, that even though meat hadn't passed the lips of most of the barrio residents in months, and even though she came from that island, her family would be having turkey on Thanksgiving Day. I can only imagine Grandma Izzy saying, Oh, don't worry. I will make some extra aroca candules, that's rice with pigeon peas, and I will give you some. The subtext being that unlike Mrs. Blanquito's shameless sinvergüenza of an esposo, her husband had provided for her family. My father, Rodolfo Valentino, was named after the silent film idol, but God help you if you ever called him anything but Rudy. He would soon turn 12. His brothers, Freddie, Papo, and Junior, were 13, 8, and 9. And the first operative mission of PETA, PETA, however you pronounce that, you know what that is, 50 years before it would become a household word, word was about to begin. 
People use the phrase eat like a bird to describe someone who picks at his or her food and eats very little. But in order for a bird to grow, unceasing amounts of nourishment must be continuously shoved down its eternally slavering insatiable maw. At least that was the case with Senor Pablo. He needed to be fed day and night in order to quiet his endless squawking and gain enough weight to ultimately feed a family of soon to be seven with hopefully some leftovers. Now where did this endless supply of turkey provender come from? <laughs> the proud World War II tradition of child labor. My father and his three brothers woke up at six o'clock in the morning, every morning, rain or shine, to trail behind the produce, ice, rag, seltzer, and knife sharpening trucks that were still horse-drawn in those days because of tire rationing, no rubber, and they would collect stray manure to sell to the victory gardens. These gardens were used to supplement um, the rations that people had. Believe me, if you had n nothing but a diet of carbs, a fresh tomato in August was such a blessing. And these gardens took up every available backyard, empty lot, courtyard, and fire escape, and were now being replanted for the fourth year in a row. The boys would have just enough time to circle the neighborhood and exchange their load of fresh horse poop for cash before heading off to school. And after school, they would scour the streets for discarded tinfoil, another valuable commodity, provided by the greatest generation's chain-smoking gum chewers. And so, the daily chores went, until spring became summer, summer became autumn, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was re-elected to an unprecedented fourth term. My father and his brothers had helped Senor Pablo blossom from a scrawny pullet until a full-size tom. Every morning, Mr. Turkey would trill in recognition when he saw the boys. Not only had they taken turns feeding him over the past eight months, but they also took turns holding him in their laps as they stroked his feathers and sang. Que dice Señor Pavo, guble, 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 mañana es el día por las gracias, guble, guble, guble. What does Mr. Turkey say? Gobble, gobble, gobble. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. Gobble, gobble, gobble. But on the other hand, when Senor Pavo saw my grandma Izzy, he would leap up and try to nip a chunk out of whatever body part he could reach. On the fourth Wednesday of November, I could only imagine my grandmother wetting her long knife as she berated the boys for making a pet out of her dinner. Mira, Senor Pavo, he's going tomorrow. I told you not to name him. I can imagine the boys shedding innocent tears as they climbed into their shared bed. My grandmother most likely dreamed sweet dreams of breast meat, drumsticks, and comeuppets as she paraded that turkey in front of the Blanquitos while she offered them her pot of arocangandules instead. A dream that turned into an open-mouthed nightmare when the next morning she found the rope coiled mockingly next to the kitchen steam pole and Senor Pavo gone. My father would tell me this story three times, the last a month before he died. That night before Thanksgiving Day, he woke up scared and breathless in his pitch-black room with an indescribable and unshakable sense of fear. He went into the kitchen to get a glass of milk and saw Senor Pavo on his mat next to the steam pole, his eyes glowing in the light from the icebox. My father got down on the floor to pet and sing to him one last time. 
What does Mr. Turkey say? Gobble, gobble, gobble. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. Gobble, gobble. Minutes later, my father returned from the front stoop and brushed the leaves off his bare feet as he crawled back into bed with his brothers. He woke up again that morning to the sound of my grandmother applying cocotazos to the backs of his brothers' heads. He knew he would be next, but he didn't care. Grandpa Ezekiel came home from his shift in the middle of Hurricane Izzy, wielding her chancletas in one hand and the plancha cord in the other. He looked at the steam pole and then at his sons, took a breath and said, Isabel, there's nothing we can do. Just make some extra arrocangandules and save some for those pobrecito children downstairs. So, Grandma Izzy resigned herself. Gone was her chance to have a real American Thanksgiving. Her family would have to endure yet another holiday without meat. But as she tended her caldero, her pot of rice and pigeon peas, something even more astonishing than the disappearance of Mr. Turkey materialized. The unmistakable smell of roast beast wafting up the stairs. The Blanquitos had received a true miracle on 106th Street. A freshly roasted turkey on their dinner table and a smile on all of 11 of their drawn faces. Later that afternoon, Mr. Blanquito told my father he swore he saw the Virgin Mary, or something like it. Upon waking up from his latest three-day bender on the apartment building's front stoop, he found a turkey curled up next to him. Tamed and affectionate from his short life of being hand-fed and petted by his adoring handlers, Senor Pavel didn't even squawk when Mr. Blanquito scooped him up and brought him inside. I can't say if he was silent when the knife fell. Grandma Izzy followed her nose downstairs, where two cultures, both known for their love of language and confrontation, came face to face. I can only imagine the accusations, insults, and ethnic slurs flaring until both sides realized they were in the same boat and a truce was reached. Because, you see, there was a greater war going on and they were each just a family struggling to survive the best way they knew how. Grandma Izzy went upstairs to fetch her rocangandules, and in that late afternoon of the fourth Thursday of November in 1944, 18 people from two different cultures sat in the Blanquitos' apartment and gave thanks, which, in a neighborhood like Spanish Harlem in 1944, was somewhat of a miracle in itself. And did they all eat it? Of course they all ate it! There was no tolerance for alternative lifestyles back then. No grumbling about animal rights, food allergies, or growth hormones. There was a war going on. At the end of the kids' table was 12-year-old Elizabeth, Betty Blanquito, sucking out the marrow from a drumstick, inhaling Grandma Izzy's arrocangandules, and batting the eyelashes of her big green eyes at my father as she listened to him tell and retell the story of the heroic liberation and sacrifice of Senor Pavel. At the grown-ups' table, Mr. Blanquito nodded in satisfaction. Meat drunk. He would, after this conversion, stay off the sauce for six months, long enough to hold a job and move his family at last the six blocks east to Pleasant Avenue. As for Betty Blanquito and Rudy, they kept what used to be called company, on and off for the next eight years, until one summer afternoon, my father looked out the window and saw my mother.
And this is Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, and that's our show for this week. And remember, Fish Out of Agua is just one New Yorican story. My story. But the more of us who tell our stories ourselves in our own way, the more we will become an unstoppable force. And this country, and maybe even the world, will listen. And maybe they'll learn. If you like what you've heard today, please consider supporting this show or any other Radio Free Brooklyn show of your choice via with Patreon. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and see how. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand coming up at 4 p.m. next, and I'll leave you with another song from my unspent youth that spoke to me during that time. It's by New York City's very own New York Dolls, and it's called Personality Crisis. Till next week.